0: O Lord, thy word is a lamp unto our feet, it is a light unto our paths. O Gracious God, and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit, that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. Um, It's been a a number of months. Some of you may not even remember where we left off. Um, We have been studying, uh, before we took the break for the summer, the second letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy, and that's where we're going to pick up today. Uh, We took a little break during the summer and looked at some of the parables, and perhaps we'll come back to them at a later time because the parables are wonderful. But uh, once you start something, it's always good to finish it. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn today to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to read through just the first few verses. And then we'll go back and just do a brief review to remind you of what this letter is all about, uh, what Paul's intent was in writing it, and why it's of significance for us today. So if you have your Bibles, and I encourage you to bring your Bibles. There's a great collect in the Book of Common Prayer that asks the Lord to grant that we might be able to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Holy Scriptures. And one of the texts we may get to today, I don't know if we will or not, is something that Paul writes in Ephesians. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is against spiritual forces of wickedness. And therefore, he says, we need to put on the full armor of God. And he talks about the helmet of salvation. He talks about the breastplate of righteousness. He talks about the shield of faith. One of the things that you notice when you read through Paul's description of the spiritual armor that the Christian has to put on is that there's only one piece of armor that is an offensive weapon. Everything else is for defense. There's only one piece that is for both defense and for offense, not just to fend off the attacks of the enemy, but to fight back, and that's the what? It's the sword of the spirit, which is, Paul says, the word of God. So, there is no substitute for the Word of God, so bring your Bibles. If you're on your iPhones, I'm going to assume you're looking at the Bible. <laughs> and not eBay or something else. So, bring your Bibles so that I don't have any doubts as to where your real heart lies. 2 <laughs> Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself." Just a little bit of a review about this second letter to Timothy. Hadley Mole, who was for many years the Bishop of the Diocese of Durham in the Church of England, used to say that he found it difficult to read through a single chapter of St. Paul's second letter to Timothy without something like a mist gathering in his eyes. It was so emotional for him. And part of that was because this was the very last letter that ever came from the Apostle Paul. Now, it's not his most famous letter, perhaps. Um, We're more familiar, perhaps, with Romans, the great constitution of the Christian faith, some have said. We're more familiar with 1 and 2 Corinthians. Maybe we are more familiar with Ephesians that I've already mentioned, or Philippians, Paul's Ode to Joy. But this is an important letter, if for no other reason than these are Paul's final words. His last words written to the church, and in particular to a young man who was a leader in the church, a man by the name of Timothy. And therefore, it's a very moving thing. It's a very moving thing. It tells us what was heavy on heart on Paul's heart and on his mind as he faced the prospect of martyrdom. One of the things we also have to remember is that Paul at this point was imprisoned. Um, He had been imprisoned in Rome on another occasion, but it had been house arrest. But on this particular occasion Paul was awaiting execution for capital crimes against the Empire. Now you say, well what in the world had Paul done? Something that we wouldn't consider to be particularly controversial, although it may soon become controversial. What Paul was doing, he was out praying, proclaiming that Jesus was the Lord. Now, I say that's not controversial to us today because you can see that on the back of bumper stickers if you're sitting at a red light. You can see that on billboards as you're traveling up I 95, see things that say, Jesus is Lord. Not too controversial to us today, pretty pedestrian. But in Paul's day, to proclaim Jesus as Lord meant that Caesar was not. And that was regarded as sedition that was undermining the authority of the state, and it was a very serious offense. In fact, it was so serious, it's ultimately what got Jesus crucified. Make no bones about it. When the Jewish religious leaders dragged the Lord Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator, the governor, and he examined Jesus, what did he say? He came out before the crowd and he said, I find no fault with this man. In other words, he's innocent before the law. He hasn't broken any Roman law. I don't see anything that he's done wrong. I am prepared to release him. And the people began to shout what? This man claims to be a king and we have no king but Caesar. And that's all of the sudden when everything turned. Because Pilate recognized as a Roman governor, it was his responsibility to uphold the authority of Caesar. There could be no other authority in the land. And it was for that reason that Jesus was ultimately crucified. So when Paul was out there preaching Jesus as Lord, even though that doesn't sound like a big deal to us today, in Paul's day it was a very serious offense. And as a consequence of it, he had been arrested and he was imprisoned in a place called the Mamertine jail. And if you go to Rome today, you can actually see it. Paul was being held in an abandoned cistern that was about 20 feet deep and about 20 feet in diameter. And it was there that he awaited execution. And that execution could come at any time. He had no idea. All he knew was that he was condemned to die. And it was there in that cold, damp place that Paul wrote the words that we have before us today. So Paul was in a bad place, but the church also was in a very bad place at this point. This is early on. There was already a systematic persecution that was taking place against the church. It was being led by a man who was no friend of Christianity, an emperor by the name of Nero. Rome had burned a short time before, and almost the entire city had been destroyed, and the people were angry. They began to blame the emperor. The emperor was looking for a scapegoat. There was only one part of the city of Rome that had been spared destruction. It was a ghetto. It was where the poorest of the poor people lived. And at that point, the poorest of the poor were the Christians. And so, looking for somebody to be a scapegoat, Nero blamed the Christians, the followers of this crucified and supposedly risen Messiah. And so there was this systematic purge that was taking place in the life of the church. It was during the purge that Paul himself was arrested. So there was a great deal of pressure from the outside. In addition to that, there were all kinds of competing religions that were springing up all over the scene. What they were called mystery religions in those days. People who would claim not to be so much religious as spiritual. That sound familiar to you today? You get lots of people who say that sort of thing today. I'm not particularly religious. They'll even say that to me. I don't, I don't know if they're trying to reassure me or reassure themselves. They'll come up and say, oh no, no, pastor, father, reverend, I want you to know I, I, I don't go to church but I'm spiritual. Okay. Good for you. You think that impresses me? It doesn't impress me, but I can tell you, it doesn't impress the Lord all that much. But at any rate, those kinds of religions were springing up all over the place, and many people were leaving the church and going over to them. Why? Because it was sort of a smorgasbord. You you can define your religion and your, your spirituality any way you want without all the restrictions that others might impose upon you. So there was a great deal of pressure from the outside. There was a great deal of pressure from the inside. There were people that were deserting the faith. And Paul now, the greatest champion of the Christian faith, was himself waiting execution. And if the Christian faith was going to survive, Paul understood that he needed to pass the torch of leadership on to somebody else. And he decided to pass it on to this friend of his, who at that point was leading the church in Ephesus man by the name of Timothy. Now, who was Timothy? Well, if you remember when we first took a look at this epistle, we said a number of things about Timothy. The first thing about Timothy was that he was young. In both of the epistles, first and second Timothy, Paul makes reference to this fact. On one occasion, he says, don't let anybody look down on you because you are young. On another occasion, he encourages Timothy to flee youthful passions, which tells us that Timothy was probably not much older than his mid-30s at this point. He's a very Young man. Second thing about Timothy was that all the indicators suggest to us that he was extremely shy and reticent because Paul, in his letters, encourages the churches to sort of buoy Timothy up, give him a pat on the back, encourage him because he's going to need it. So the indicators suggest to us that he was a sort of shy, retiring person. We would call him an introvert today. He was also sickly. Paul talks about his frequent ailments. He encourages Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach, to settle his upset stomach. This is the beginning of the Anglican tradition right there. Uh. (laughs) So he's young. He's shy. He's sickly. And what that all adds up to is that he was unlikely. I mean, he was the polar opposite of the Apostle Paul. Paul was not young. At this point in his ministry, he was in the late afternoon of his glory. That's the best way to describe it. In addition to that, Paul was anything but an introvert. Everything suggests to us that he was a raging extrovert. He was not sickly. Paul must have had the constitution of an ox My goodness, over the course of his years he had endured everything. He had traveled all over the ancient Greco-Roman world and he endured all kinds of sufferings and privations as a consequence of that and somehow he seemed to be no worse for wear. He had some sort of physical ailment, we don't know what it is. Many people have speculated that perhaps he was suffering from uh, a dimming eyesight, perhaps that was the case, but it didn't stop him, he continued to write. And If he couldn't write himself, he found somebody to whom he could dictate his letters. And now he has to pass the torch on to somebody else to somebody who is obviously completely different from him. Can you imagine how Timothy must have felt? Who would like to step into those shoes? You know, sometimes it's not hard to follow a complete disaster because <laughs> no matter what, you've got to go up. But it's much different to follow somebody who's been a complete success a giant like the apostle paul and so the question is how was timothy going to do this how was he going to step into those shoes paul was saying the church is on the verge of collapsing i'm going away I'm passing this on to you it's all up to you fellow how was timothy going to do it well paul makes it very clear in first timothy chapter one he says You're going to do it by the help of the holy spirit That's the only way Timothy was going to be able to do it, was by the grace and the aid and the help of the Holy Spirit. Do you know how John describes the Holy Spirit in his gospel? As the paraclete. It means the one who comes alongside to help. Timothy could not do it in and of his own strength. He would have felt overwhelmed, intimidated, discouraged. But he could do it by the grace of the Holy Spirit the one who is the Lord and the giver of life. That's how Timothy was to do it. Now, just to refresh your memory, the question we have to ask ourselves is, why are we studying 2 Timothy? Well, we can say, well, it's of historical significance, of course, because after all, these were the last words ever written by one of the most influential women who ever lived. But I suggest to you that there's a much more practical reason why we should study 2 2 Timothy. It's because you and I are living in a very similar time to the time in which the Apostle Paul lived and operated. We, too, are living in a world that is in the midst of moral, spiritual, and physical chaos. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 for just a moment, and I want you to listen to these words very closely. I've read them to you before, but they are some of my favorite words in Scripture because I just think they are so apt Paul writes this to Timothy. Now, I want you to remember, he wrote this in the year 64 A.D., between 64 and 67 A.D. That's over 2,000 years ago, roughly 2,000 years ago. And listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He says, but understand this, in the last days, now the last days basically means that period between Jesus' ascension and his return in glory, that whole Period of time is the last days. But listen to what he says. But in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. They'll be proud, arrogant, abusive. They will be disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. They will be treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, They'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now that described Paul's day of the first century. Do you think it describes our day in the 21st century? You couldn't have a more apt description of Western society and American society today than the one that Paul gives us right there. So why should we be studying 2 Timothy? Because we're living in a very similar time. I've said to you before, Paul lived in a pre-Christian culture. You and I are living in a post-Christian culture. And those two cultures are remarkably similar. Our world is in moral, spiritual, and physical freefall. It's just the facts. Furthermore, we're living in a time in which there are many competitors to Christianity. I know that some of you are aware that an op-ed by uh, a nameless author appeared in the Post and Courier today. <laughs> Yours truly. Um, it's about religious freedom. Because what is particularly interesting to me, and I have to admit that that was a collaborative effort, I was not the, the only person that wrote that, um, but the other people I'm going to protect the innocent so when the blowback comes, nobody else gets it. <laughs> Um, but I will make you aware of the fact that it seems that you can say anything you want about Christianity, but you dare not say anything else about any other religion. You dare not, in any way, say anything negative about Islam. But it's perfectly fashionable to do that sort of thing about Christianity, and to pillory Christians in the press. You probably saw some of the, uh, the, the Senate hearings recently about a candidate, a law professor from Notre Dame who was up for a position and they were grilling her on her Catholic theology, as if that has anything to do with whether or not that person was capable of holding a high office. But that's the world in which we live and we need to recognize that. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul was facing. In his day, new religions were considered to be dangerous. It's one of the reasons why Judaism was protected by the Romans, but Christianity was not. There was no freedom of religion in those days, and there's not much freedom of religion today either. Third reason we need to be studying 2 Timothy is because in Paul's day, many Christians, as I said, were deserting the faith. And many Christians today are deserting the faith. I'm gonna mention in the sermon this morning that in 2001, 72% of all people in England and Wales described themselves as Christian. In 2001, 10 years later, that percentage had dropped to 59% in 10 years. Last month, another survey was held, that figure had dropped beneath 50%. Many people are deserting the faith. And that means that a new generation of guardians, a new generation of Timothys, is desperately needed in the life of the world today. And that's why we're studying this epistle. It has tremendous significance and importance for your life and for mine, and for the life of your children, and the life of your grandchildren, and the future of the faith in this nation and beyond. So, turning now to 2 Timothy chapter 2, we've already been through the first chapter. I'm not going to go back and go through all of that, but that's just a review of why we're doing what we're doing today. We're going to turn now to 2 Timothy chapter 2 in the words that I read a moment ago, where Paul describes for Timothy what his ministry is going to be like. And what he does is he gives Timothy three pictures, three images, three metaphors to describe his ministry. And I would submit to you that these are the same images for you and for me. Paul is saying, you want to know what your ministry is going to be like, Timothy? It's going to be like the work of a soldier. It's going to be like the work of an athlete. And it's going to be like the work of a farmer. And those same images apply to you and me. If you are serious about the Christian faith, if you are serious about being a follower of Jesus Christ, of taking up your cross and following him, and let me tell you something, that's the only way you can be a Christian. You, you, can, you have to be hot or cold, but there's no lukewarm in the middle. And so if you're serious about following Jesus Christ, then these three images apply to you as well. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And I want to take a look at them in turn today. The first thing Paul says is that you have to serve Christ like a faithful soldier. Verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now, Paul specifically chose that image of a soldier. Paul oftentimes employs military imagery. What is it about a soldier that helps us to understand the Christian life? Well, when you think of a soldier, the first thing that you recognize is that oftentimes a soldier's life is one of warfare. Now, sometimes you're enlisted in peace, but you always know that if there is a time of conflict, who are the first people called up? The soldiers or the military. I don't mean in any way, Myron, to denigrate the Marine Corps or anything like that. I just, but the soldier, the military, they're the ones who are immediately called to action. That's one of the things we have to remember about the Christian life, Paul is telling Timothy. That your life, if you're serious as a Christian, is going to be a life of conflict. It is going to be a life of warfare. If you think that following Jesus Christ is going to be a life of ease and comfort, my friends, you have made a huge mistake. Our bishop described it well. He said, this is not a cruise ship, this is a battleship. And from the moment of your baptism and your confirmation, that's what you have been done. You've been enlisted into the Lord's army. The old description was the church militant. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. It is a conflict, my friends. It is a struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil and it is ongoing. Now there may be times of relative peace, but the ultimate warfare never abates. Keep your finger there in 2 Timothy and turn, if you will, to Ephesians for just a moment. Ephesians chapter six. and let's read these familiar words. Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord, Ephesians 6.10, and in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God. Now what I find is particularly interesting is that in the previous chapter, in the beginning of this chapter, Ephesians 5 and 6, Paul is talking about the relationship between husbands and wives and the relationship between parents and children. And remember, when these words were originally written, there were no chapter divisions. The chapter divisions that we have in the Bible were put in in the Middle Ages by monks who wanted to make the Scripture easier to memorize and to understand. But when Paul wrote these epistles, he didn't write, now here's chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. He wrote a letter like everybody else. So isn't it interesting that Paul talks about the relationship between husbands and wives, marriage, and he talks about the relationship between parents and children, and the next thing he says is, now put on the full armor of God. Paul says, you've got to put on the full armor of God because your struggle is not just against the world, the flesh. It's against the devil. Peter says the same thing. In one of his epistles, he describes the devil as a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. Who do you think the someone is? It's you. It's your children. And it's your grandchildren. So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I'm passing off this torch to you. It's going to be your responsibility to be leader in the church. And I want you to understand first and foremost that means you're going to be a soldier, and that means yours is going to be a life of conflict, a life of struggle. Listen, folks, if you are not struggling in your Christian life, you may not be a Christian. Because Paul is very clear that's what the Christian life is, it is a struggle. It is a warfare, a continuous warfare, as I said, against the world. That is all of the things that the world puts out to us, all of the attractive things. A new iPhone just came out, and my daughter, she's going to turn 13, and I said, now, what do you want for your birthday? (laughs) And she said, I want the iPhone 10. (laughs) And I said, what else do you want for your birthday? It's very interesting. Iron, do you remember a few years ago when they had all those sit-ins on Wall Street? All those young people went out there, sitting down on Wall Street, fighting against the man? And that was, when the, that was the same year that the new iPhone came out, whatever the model was at that time. And all those young people got up and walked down the street and bought the new iPhones. This was in the New York Times. And then they came back and continued their sit-in on Wall Street. Now, I I thought that was really interesting, and I was wondering, who's paying for those new iPhones? (laughs) See, the world is out there, and the world has got all of these glitzy, attractive things. There are all those things that pull us away, distract us from the things that really matter. How many times have you ever been in a restaurant, and you've seen an entire family sitting around a table just like this, and everybody's on their own screen? Now, that's a distraction from the family and from time spent together as a family. But those things can also be enormous distractions from what? From better things, from the Lord, from time spent in his word, whatever it may be. Now, don't get me wrong, I got one. And I'm as guilty as anybody else. But the reality is the world can be subtle in the way that it pulls us away from the things that really matter. So our struggles against the world, struggles against the flesh, the desires, of the flesh for pleasure. Isn't that what Paul said? They will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We will follow Christ up to a point until it becomes, well, inconvenient. When it becomes inconvenient what happens? Well, we fall away. Jesus told a parable about this on one occasion. He said a sower went out and he threw his seed and some of that seed fell on the hard path and it was devoured by the birds. He said, some of that fell on what? On rocky soil that did not have root. And when the sun came out and difficulty and persecution arose, the seed withered. Some fell on good soil, but it was infested with thorns and thickets, and it strangled out the life of the seed. And Jesus said, that's what the world does. The desire for wealth and for glory, the idea that he who dies with the most toys wins, that strangles out the life. Spirit of God. So our struggle is against the world, the flesh, and make no bones about it, our struggle is against the devil. He's real, and he's serious about his business. So Paul says, if you're a Christian, understand yours is going to be a life of warfare. It's going to be a life of hardship. Soldiers, Marines, airmen, sailors, they all live lives of hardship. I spent 17 years in Beaufort, South Carolina. It's a marine town. We of course have Paris Island there, the Marine Corps recruiting depot. We also had an air station there and we had a large number of Marines and Navy personnel who attended the parish. And It was tragic sometimes to see what happened. People would be deployed for long periods of time. Husbands would be sent overseas and the wives had to carry on as best they could. Husband would get an order and he's being deployed in just a few hours, particularly if these were pilots and so forth. And they'd be deployed or or sent off on a ship and the next thing you knew, the wife had to carry on by herself with her children. And this is one of the things that I found every time I had to counsel was when the husband came back home after a six-month deployment and the wife had to sort of get life together and go on as best she could and then he comes back and he wants to now be the head of the family, and she's been sort of running things for the past six months, and she's got her own routine, and it made friction in that family. That's hard on a family. That that's difficult. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, my wife, um, when we first got there, and I first became the rector, uh, we had a, a family of four, and she had you know she'd have our two in tow, and then. She had a third one, and then a fourth one, and these two ladies that um, my wife normally went to the later service, she didn't go to the eight o'clock service, and there were some people that went to the eight o'clock. That's all they did is went to the eight o'clock service. And my wife showed up one day for the eight o'clock service, and one of the ladies turned to lady next to her, and she said. That young woman, I see her around the church every now and then. shes You know, she, her husband must be on a long deployment because I never see him. Uh, but every now and then she shows up with a new child, so he must come home. And, uh, and somebody turned to her and said, that's the rector's wife. But that was sort of the imagery, you see. Well, Jesus said, anyone who loves father or mother or sister or brother, or child more than me is not worthy of me. Sometimes being a soldier for Christ means separation from family. That's a hard thing, but it's sometimes required. It certainly involves moments of great danger. One of the soldiers during the Civil War was asked to describe his experience. And he said, being a Civil War soldier involved long periods of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. And I think most soldiers would probably admit that that's what it's like. Oftentimes it's long periods of tremendous boredom and then moments sheer terror. Paul talked about that in his second letter to the Corinthians. He talked about having been beaten with rods, having been shipwrecked having been publicly flogged, in jail and out of jail, imprisoned, in danger on the roads, on the highways, from his own people, the Jews, from the Gentiles as well. You name it, it happened to the Apostle Paul. Even on the Isle of Crete, we're told that he was bitten by a venomous snake, which I think was probably the worst thing that ever happened to the man. I hate them. But you name it, it happened to Paul. Now, what I think is very interesting is that he's telling Timothy all of this before he passes on the baton. You might very well think to yourself, well, if this is what it's all about, I'd rather not. Well, eventually you'll see that Paul gives us motivation as to why we should. But I want you to understand right here and right now, this is what the Christian life is all about. This is not, oh, give your life to Jesus and everything's going to be easy from here on out. The Christian life is not a life of ease, as I said, it is an invitation to take up the cross and follow. It is a life characterized by duty. Robert E. Lee, whose reputation seems to be falling on hard times these days, once said that duty is the sublimest word in the English language. Anybody here a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point? I know many of you are graduates out of that other great institute, Um, but any West Point graduates? Anybody know what the motto of West Point is? Duty, honor, country. What comes first? Duty. The life of a soldier is a life of duty. It is not a life of pleasure. It's not about satisfying yourself. It's about satisfying those who are in authority over you. It is a life of duty. Job, in that great book, perhaps the oldest book in the Bible, book about suffering once said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That's duty. And the life of a soldier is what? It is a life of single-minded devotion. You've got a mission. And you stick to the mission. You're giving orders, and if those orders are to hold this position at all costs, what does that mean, those of you who are military officers? The ultimate sacrifice. That's the life of a soldier, you see. And Paul is telling Timothy, that's your life. That's the Christian life. Winston Churchill put it well. He said, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Paul is saying, Timothy, that's what it means to be a soldier for Jesus Christ. Are you in the army? Are you enlisted in the cause of the captain? Paul goes on to use a second image, going back now to 2 Timothy. And that second image is that of an athlete. What's the life of an athlete? Well, first of all, an athlete has a life of ambition ambition in a bad way. You know, there are some ambitions that are bad, but not all ambition is. A desire to succeed is a good ambition. It's a noble ambition. And athletes have a desire to succeed. They want to succeed. They want to triumph. They want to what? Win the prize. That's why you do it. That's why you compete, as to win the prize. So you are desiring something greater. That's what it means to be an athlete. Not only that, but the life of an athlete is a life of discipline, very much like the life of a soldier. To be an athlete means you have to be willing to say no to some things, like jelly donuts. (laughs) And it means you have to be willing to say yes to other things, like getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning to run 5 miles when it's already 86 degrees outside in humidity, everywhere. That's what it means to be an athlete. That's the only way that you can be equipped to run the race, isn't it? Paul says the same thing is true in the Christian life. If you're going to achieve the prize, the high calling of Christ, that crown which does not fade, then there are going to be times in life when you're going to have to say no to things that everybody else is saying yes to. And you're gonna have to be willing to say yes to things that everybody else is saying no to. Because that's what it means to be an athlete and that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. One of the greatest examples of this, of course, is Eric Little. If you've ever seen the uh, 1981 film Chariots of Fire, anybody ever seen that? And most of you have, you know the story of Eric Little. He was a young man, um, University of Edinburgh, rugby player as a matter of fact, but he was a great runner, and um, he was enlisted uh, on the British Olympic team for the 1924 Olympics which were held in Paris, France. But he was a devout Christian. He was a, a Presbyterian, Church of Scotland, and he believed that the Sunday was the Christian Sabbath. It was not a day to work. It was a day to rest. And when he was en route to Paris, he was informed of the fact that the race that he was supposed to run in had been rescheduled for Sunday. And he said that he couldn't do it. Well, of course, this was in 1924. This was just after the First World War. This was an issue of national pride. What do you mean you're not going to run? You've got to do this for king and country. And he said, I can't. My conscience won't allow me to do it. And they put tremendous pressure on Eric Little. So much so that when he arrived in Paris, France, he was taken to a cocktail party. And guess who was there? The Prince of Wales. The future king of England. His future king. And Eric Little's response was, I cannot run. God knows I love my country, but I cannot break his law. And so they decided that the only thing they could do is let Eric Little run another race. Another race that he had not trained for. And he ran that race and he broke the world's record and he led his nation to victory. But the pressure that was put on him to conform, to capitulate, to deny what he knew to be true in his heart was great, but he wouldn't do it. And as you see up there, He ran not for the crowds, not for country, not for fame, not for glory. He ran for God. How about you? Are you willing to say no to things that everybody else, perhaps your friends, your relatives are saying yes to? Are you willing to say no to some of those things? Those are not our priorities. Are you willing to say yes to the things that everybody else is saying no to? Paul uses one more image here. It's the image of the Christian farmer. He said, It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. We had some farmers who were tomato farmers down in Beaufort, members of the parish, wonderful people. This is not small-time tomato farming, it was big tomato farming one of the things that just struck me about them is they were just wonderful salt of the earth and they were the hardest-working people I've ever known. What does it mean to be a farmer? Well, it means that you're working for a harvest. You know, for some farmers, if they don't get a harvest, they don't survive. Jesus, on one occasion, said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest will send out harvesters into his fields. There's a great harvest out there, my friends, of people who do not know Jesus Christ. And as Christians, it is our job to bring them into the fold, to rescue them. And a farmer has to work hard to do that, up early and late to bed. It is a life of work from dawn to dusk. Too many Christians are looking for a life of ease. Let me tell you something. The word retirement is not in the Bible. And it is not in the Christian Vocabulary. Now, you can retire from your profession, but you do not retire from the Christian life. You simply don't. It's a life of work. It's a life of striving for the harvest to bring people, other people, into the fold. Incidentally, we were created for work. If you go back and you read Genesis chapter 2, we're told that when God created man, the first thing he did was what? Place him in the garden to work it. And if you think you're going to go to heaven and sit on a cloud and strum a harp for all eternity, I got news for you. It's going to be a life of work, but work that's fulfilling. Work in which you accomplish something. Let me tell you something. You can be successful. You can make millions of dollars over the course of your life. You can be successful in the eyes of the world, but the only work that lasts is bringing somebody into the kingdom of God because everything else in this life will fade away. Think of the wealthiest person you know that has died recently. Let me ask you a question. How much do you think they left behind? All of it. You're going to leave it all behind. But The kind of work that lasts, you bring somebody into the kingdom of God, one person, into the kingdom of God over the course of your life, and that is the work that lasts. You'll see that life fulfilled for eternity. All of this is simply to remind us, my friends, salvation is a free gift. It is not a free ride. The Apostle Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Doesn't mean that you work for your salvation. Salvation, as I said, is a free gift. But what Paul does mean is that when you are saved, you now take that great gift and you put it to work. For the sake of Christ and for the sake of His kingdom. And it will be hard. It will be strong. There will be times when the battle is fierce. There will be times when you feel as though you're about to be crushed. There will be times of uncertainty. Let me tell you, I understand that. Perhaps I understand it now more than at any other point in my life. But there is no turning back. Because we know how this story ends, my friends. The battle is fierce. But the war has been won. And if we press on to the end, there will be, waiting for us, a victor's crown of glory. When we come back next week, we'll just briefly take a look at five motivations that Paul gives us for pressing on in this life as the Christian soldier, as the Christian athlete, and as the Christian farmer. But you'll have to wait and see that next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, We are living in dangerous times, and the freedom to worship uh, is being undermined in our culture. We look back to the founding of this nation, we remember those who put everything on their line. They, They put their reputations on the line. They put their families on the line. They put their fortune on the line. In order to gain for us freedom, grant us the grace to be willing if necessary, to sacrifice everything for the sake of him who sacrificed for us. Grant us the grace to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, to follow wherever the commander leads with the cross of Jesus going on before. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.